it's not only Israeli authorities that are peddling disinformation. The president of the US, Joe Biden, has also went on spreading disinformation when he, for instance, repeat said that uh, he saw 40 beheaded babies, which the White House then clarified that they have not seen any confirmed reports of beheaded babies. But the CNN reported that. And then they said, oops, sorry, we could not verify that information. We were misled. But the damage was already done. The dehumanization was already done. The justification of Israel's bombardment and carbon bombing campaign is in Gaza is done. Hello and welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. I'm your host, Paris Marks, and this week my guest is Marwa Fatafta. Marwa is a Palestinian digital rights advocate and researcher. She is a policy and advocacy director at Access Now, where she leads their work on the Middle East and North Africa region. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, on October 7th, Hamas fighters breached the fence that Israel built around Gaza and got into Israeli communities and killed, I believe it's 1,200 uh, civilians is the number that we have now. And as a result of that, um, Israel launched kind of an unprecedented bombing campaign and bombardment on Gaza. We've also seen bombings happen in Lebanon and Syria, and of course, an increase in settler violence in the West Bank, and of course, Palestinian families being forced out of their communities by those settlers. You know, the death toll in Gaza now is over 11,000 people, a very high percentage of those being children and women who are dying because of this. And I felt it essential that we had to do an episode discussing what is going on in Gaza and in Palestine right now, because it's not just in violation of the Geneva Conventions. It's not just a series of war crimes. It's not just a genocide that's happening, but it's in violation of the most kind of basic moral decency. I don't think it's possible to sit back and see what is happening in Gaza right now and not kind of speak up and say something about it. And, you know, the very least that we can do is to at least speak to somebody who knows a lot more about this than I do. And so that is why I wanted to have Marwa on the show to speak to us about, you know, what is happening in Gaza, to speak to us about the technological angle of this, to see the impact of internet shutdowns and and what is happening on social media and, you know, the larger kind of technological apparatus of oppression that Israel has developed and subjected the Palestinian people to. And of course, I spoke about this earlier this year with Anthony Lowenstein. Um, that's episode 176, published on July 13th, if you want to go back and listen to it. On a slightly less serious note, the four-part Elon Musk Unmasked series might be over, but this weekend on Saturday, November 18th, I'll be doing a live stream where I'll be taking your questions about Elon Musk, the series itself, and anything else, you know, tech-related that you really want to ask me about. So that will be November 18th at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, or 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, to join, you need to be a Patreon supporter. So if you do want to participate in that live stream and ask some questions, go to patreon.com slash us, sign up, and you can join us for it. And of course, for listeners in Australia and New Zealand, I tried to accommodate you as well. 
So that time is morning your time. So you can also join us if you choose to do so. I hope to see you there and I look forward to your questions. So anyway, that is all from me. I think it's better to kind of leave this to Marwa and, you know, her incredible insights. And I would just say, I know that it can feel kind of powerless seeing all of these videos of atrocities online and the reporting about them. But I think Marwa kind of ends this interview on a bit of, you know, a hopeful note or at least an empowering note to say that, you know, you don't need to sit by and just accept that, that there are things that you can do, you know, even as an individual to help the Palestinian cause. And I would encourage you to do that. So it feels so weird to say this usual spiel in an episode like this, but if you do enjoy it, you can leave a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can also share the interview on social media or with any friends or colleagues who you think would learn from it. And if you do want to support the work that goes into making the show every single week so we can continue to have these critical conversations, these important conversations with people like Marwa, you can join supporters like John from Staten Island, Rupert from London, Mike in Oakland, Trolls in Denmark, Jarno from Helsinki, and Anton from Germany by going to patreon.com slash us, where you can become a supporter as well. Thanks so much and enjoy this week's conversation. Marwa, welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you. You know, unfortunately, the context that we're having this conversation in is, you know, just terrible, right? After seeing what has been happening, you know, starting with the attack by Hamas on October 7th. And then, of course, you know, because of that, seeing the escalation in, you know, the existing kind of occupation and system of apartheid that Israel has been engaging in, in Gaza and the West Bank. But in particular, you know, we now have a death toll over 11,000 people in Gaza from the bombing campaigns and from everything that Israel has been doing since that attack on October 7th. And so I wonder, I guess, just to start our conversation and to ground our conversation, you know, what you have been thinking about or how you have been kind of processing everything that you're seeing over the past month or so since this particular kind of phase, I guess, of, you know, this occupation has been going on? Um, There is no easy answer to this question, but I could say that I think for me, it's been probably one of the most difficult periods of my life. We have witnessed wars before, particularly in Gaza as a Palestinian we somehow are accustomed or used to waking up every morning to news of death, you know, people being killed, detained, injured, maimed. But this round, it's been extremely painful because the level of destruction and mass murder is unprecedented. And it's really hard for me to witness this genocide unfolding before our eyes online and you know not being able to do much about it not being able to stop it and you know what adds soul to injury is the complicity of the u.s and europe and western leaders and powers in enabling and abetting this genocide and gaslighting us today i live in germany and today i saw the german chancellor olaf schultz saying that refuting according to him absurd accusations that Israel is violating international law and asserting that Israel is a democracy and it's abiding by international law. While we are seeing with our own eyes the 
the atrocities and the war crimes and the crimes against humanity that Israel is committing day in and day out with full impunity. But of course, you know, it's not a time to despair or be reduced to tears, although there's been plenty of tears the past few days or weeks. You know, I work as a digital rights advocate, if you may, and you know, the, the conflict or the, the war has spiraled online also in an unprecedented level from, you know, the level of disinformation and hate speech and dehumanizing content circulating on, on social media to the censorship of Palestinian voices to the issue of internet shutdowns in Gaza. You know, I've been busy working on these issues. And I think, you know, the situation highlights more than ever why the internet is important and essential, and especially in times of war, it's a lifesaver. And therefore, we should try all of our best to keep it as, as open and as accessible as possible to the people in uh, on the ground in Gaza. So it's been a few uh, difficult weeks. Yeah, I, I can only imagine, you know, it's been hard enough for someone with no connection, you know, no kind of direct connection to Palestine to be watching these things, to be seeing the complicity of our leaders. You know, I'm in Canada and our government has been just as shameful as those in the United States and most of Europe. And just to see these images on our screens of children being killed and whole neighborhoods being wiped out and just seeing how these statements by people who are supposed to be like our leaders just do not line up with the reality of what we're seeing. And to pick up on your point about the internet, you know, one thing I've kind of been thinking a lot about is I remembered how during the Vietnam War, a lot of people in the United States and in the West were really against that war because they saw what was happening on television. And, you know, I'm sure the media was not perfect in that moment, but they gave people a picture of what was happening that they didn't often get about war before that, right? The images that they didn't necessarily see. And I feel like one thing that has at least kind of cut through that noise or ensured that we're not just kind of relying on what our governments are telling us in this moment is how social media and, and the internet, as flawed as those things can be at times, have allowed people on the ground in Gaza to still share what is happening, you know, what their experiences are have been during this absolutely atrocious period so that we can't deny what is going on and that anyone who is trying to justify it can be presented with the facts of, of what's happening. And unfortunately, those facts are, are just terrible, but at least they're known and at least people can see what's happening. And I don't know, like hopefully it eventually leads to some justice, even if the bombing is still continuing at this moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe you can go on a little journey down um, the history line. I mean, for us Palestinians, we have been dispossessed from our land. Palestinian villages have been massacred and destroyed and depopulated back in 1948, and over 750,000 Palestinians were expelled, and then the state of Israel was created on top of depopulated, dispossessed, and ethnically cleansed Palestinian towns and villages. And back then, the narrative was, the Zionist narrative was, that this is, you know, a land 
without a people, for people without a land, even though Palestine was or has been a pretty prosperous part of humanity's civilizations for centuries. And people from all walks of lives, industries, businesses, cinemas, theaters, farms, you name it, everything it existed. And so the reason why I'm mentioning this is because for us over the past 75 years, it has always been a war over narratives where we want to dispel Israel's myths around Palestine, how it came into existence, or how the Israeli state came into existence, and at what expense. And that was, of course, at the expense of Palestinians being expelled and dispossessed. And so, you know, fast forward now, I mean, on the one hand, we see how over 1.5 million Palestinians in Gaza Strip having to walk for miles and miles without food, without water, some babies dying in exhaustion, trying to look for a place with no guarantee even of, for their safety from Israeli bombardment and uh, Israeli snipers. And so for us, we're witnessing the so-called second Nakba, the catastrophe, what happened to us in 1948, but now in, in multicolor photos on social media. And despite the flow of images and the flow of information of the atrocities being committed in the Gaza Strip right now, we still see Western leaders and Western media peddling disinformation from the Israeli state about the current events. It's really revolting and also fascinating at the same time to see the discrepancy between people's testimonies and footage and how mainstream or Western traditional media frames those events and, and, and how they spin them. And so from that perspective, I think, you know, the internet has been a very crucial tool for people to document atrocities, to document war crimes and crimes against humanity and share it with the rest of the world as painful as they look they are important to share because otherwise we know for a fact that it's not the CNN or NBC or NPR or any, or the BBC or any of the so self-alleged objective media organizations are going to objectively indeed report on those events and call a spade a spade. I mean, in traditional media, you know, Palestinians are not killed, they just simply die. And our buildings are not bombed, they just simply collapse. And the perpetrator of those crimes is absent, is simply absent. The use of the passive voice in the English language has never been weaponized and instrumentalized to obfuscate facts and absolve Israel from its responsibilities. So that's why I think, you know, also why the internet has been weaponized in this war and why the Israeli authorities have been specifically targeting and bombing uh, internet service providers, telecommunications companies, infrastructure, and also uh, implementing full internet shutdowns a few times already over the past few weeks. I mean, we know as an organization that has been working on internet shutdowns for many, many years, we know now that whenever a an authority or a government shuts down the internet, it's really up to no good. The sole purpose is to cover the trails of their crimes and to also stop the flow of information and stop people from 
accessing information, sharing, mobilizing on the streets and dissent effectively against uh, government's actions. Yeah. And I think that is an essential point, right? And there are so many things in that answer that I want to pick up on and that will kind of inform the conversation that um, I want to continue having with you. Um, I, I do just want to kind of go back to what you were saying about the second Nakba, right, that we're seeing in Gaza right now, and just how it adds such insult to injury that so many of the people in Gaza are already people who were pushed out of their communities in the first Nakba, who are refugees from what happened the first time, and now they're being forced to move again, whether that's just to South Gaza or whether they eventually get pushed somewhere else by the Israeli authorities um, and by the Israeli army. But I do want to pick up on what you were saying there about the internet, right? I think people will have seen the stories around October 27th when there was kind of the large-scale internet blackout preceding the Israeli ground invasion of Gaza after kind of weeks of bombardment and bombing that continues to this day. But there have been kind of blackouts beyond that, internet shutdowns beyond that. And, and of course, that is not just to say that only the internet has been shut down. Gaza itself has been not only kind of uh, caged for many years, but has been under a kind of complete blockade since October 7th, not allowing medicines and food and things like that in there, other than a few trucks going through the Rafah border with Egypt more recently. So can you talk to us about those internet shutdowns and what the effect of that is, you know, when these communication lines are shut off? Yeah, indeed. So on October 8th, the Israeli Minister of Defense announced that there will be complete siege on Gaza. So there will be no food, no water, no medicine, no fuel. And then the bombardment campaign started. And since October 9th, basically, we have documented that a number of internet service providers in Gaza have been going through an internet shutdown due to the bombardment of their infrastructure. And over the month of October, we have seen that internet traffic has decreased by 80% across the Gaza Strip. And out of the 19 internet service providers operating or providing services in the Gaza Strip, 17 have been, or actually 15 have been going through a complete shutdown also over the month of October. And this is because, I mean, mainly the reasons behind these internet shutdowns are Three. One, as I said, it's the heavy bombardment that led to the partial or full destruction of the infrastructure, uh, including the destruction of fiber, optic fibers, cell towers, and, and whatnot. But then the second reason, of course, the lack of fuel means that the companies can no longer continue to run their services. Yesterday, for example, the two major Palestinian telecommunications companies, Joel and Paltel, they're part of the same group called Paltel Group, but they've sent a communication sounding the alarm that there will be a complete shutdown of their services and potentially a complete shutdown and information blackout in the Gaza Strip by this Thursday. Today is Tuesday 14th. So on Thursday, and I'm terrible with math, so it will take me a few seconds to calculate. <laughs> it would be a Thursday, the 15th, 16th if fuel is not allowed in. And to date, Israel has been refusing to let any fuel in. So it's really a question of math more than anything, that if you don't have fuel, you don't have energy. And therefore, some of those companies have been trying to rely on um, um, solar panels 
Paltel, for instance, said that the main supply from the electricity company in Gaza has been affected since the very beginning. And then they had to rely on solar panel. And if that fails, then they have to rely on some emergency energy battery that could only last them for 24 hours. And that would be activated kind of automatically in the absence of if the whole energy sources are depleted, which is, I believe, the case now. And then there is, of course, the, you know, you've mentioned the complete shutdown on the October 27th. And that was uh, as a result of the Israeli authorities simply killing the switch. So, you know, they, they, the Israeli Ministry of Communications had said publicly in a, in a kind of a report on its activities during this war that it is looking into cutting internet and telecommunications access in the Gaza Strip as part of its, uh, the government's war plan. So we think that it's probably, it probably was premediated. And it wasn't the first shutdown, although it's been the most, it's, it's been the longest so far. Uh, the internet was shut down for around 34, 36 hours. I know for a fact that it has resulted in a, it sent shockwaves across the Gaza Strip, but also uh, among Palestinians living abroad. You know, many people have lost completely contact with their families and loved ones inside of Gaza, which to begin with was very difficult. Uh, you know, people would send, I don't know, a WhatsApp message or try to reach out to their families for, for days and weeks before they're able to get a reply. You know, seeing this two ticks on WhatsApp was something that Palestinians outside of Gaza, like it was a sign of life that their families are still alive despite of the bombardment and the siege. And on the 27th, you know, there were extremely difficult hours. And, you know, Many humanitarian organizations and, and international bodies have also said that they've lost com- they've lost contact with their people on the ground, with their staff on the ground, including health workers. Uh, the Palestinian Red Crescent also said that they've lost access to their emergency room, which means that people who were bombarded, injured, were not able to um, evacuate or have ambulances to transport the injured to hospitals. Many Palestinians had to resort to using carriages dragged by by donkeys to transport the injured to to hospitals. People also did not know which areas were bombarded because they lost access to to information, access to the news. So, in that situation, I mean, imagine yourself in the Gaza Strip and you hear bombs, some near, some far. You can't talk to your family. You can't have access to the news. You have no clue whether you would be next. And also you have no clue where you can escape to. It's an absolute nightmare that I do not wish even upon my enemies. So there was a strong backlash from international organizations and even the White House kind of shamelessly (laughs) claimed that they were the ones that, you know, pressured the Israelis to bring it back. I wouldn't want to give the White House any credit. But there was a strong backlash from many organizations, including civil society. And I think Israel's been, since then, has been implementing kind of partial shutdowns. On October 1st, there were there was a shutdown for at least nine or eight hours overnight. There was also a shutdown in the northern part of Gaza, where there is currently a military operation. There was also a shutdown on November 5th. And again, if fuel is not allowed in by this Thursday, 
the possibility of having another information blackout is very real. What you described there, you know, about not being able to communicate with your family, or you know, anyone outside of outside of uh, Gaza being able to communicate with their family is just so hard to imagine. And then, you know, thinking about being in Gaza and hearing and seeing these bombs dropping around you and not being able to access the information on what is actually going on or being able to even contact like medical authorities or an ambulance just seems absolutely harrowing, right? I want to briefly ask you about something. I was reading a report by Hamle, uh, you know, uh, an, an Arab organization around social media, and they were saying that it's not even just the kind of occasional cutting of connectivity by Israeli authorities, but there's also kind of a, a longstanding ban on allowing more advanced technologies, tel- telecommunications technologies into Gaza. Is there anything that you can tell us about that? Yeah, that's a very important context for the readers to know that Gaza has been under a military blockade for, what, 16 years now. And what that essentially means that anything that goes into the Gaza Strip must be approved by an arm that reports to, it's a military administration that reports to the Israeli Ministry of Defense. And they have to approve also uh, materials for infrastructure and basically, it's, it's restricted around uh, materials for civilian use. Now, under that, those conditions and under that blockade, a lot of the needed equipment and technologies for providing speedy and reliable internet access and telecommunications access has been denied under allegations of possible du- dual use. That's why in the Gaza Strip right now, people still have access to uh, 2G, that mobile networks. In the West Bank, people have access to 3G networks. And the entire Palestinian communications or ICT infrastructure is controlled by the Israeli authorities. They decide on the electromagnetic sphere and spectrum and, and the allocation of those they have full control over the radio frequencies. They have full control over the import and in the installations of cell towers and technology. And for a long time, you know, they, the Palestinian Authority and also telecommunications companies have been negotiating for 12 years to have Israel allowing access or allowing these uh, Palestinian operators upgrade their mobile networks from 2G to 3G in the West Bank. And it was only allowed in 2018. And since then, there have been negotiations and campaigns to allow Palestinian operators to go to 4G. So basically, simply to catch up with the rest of the world. And in Gaza, it's it's like one step behind still because of the military blockade that has been placed on it since 2006. Meanwhile, here in North America and, and Europe, you know, we have 5G and are talking about 6G, right? And and Gaza is still stuck with 2G. You know, it, it shows the inequity right there and that they can't even make those decisions for themselves. You know, we've been talking about the internet shutdowns, right? And the very basic access to this network to be able to get online. But we know that social media platforms and the ability to share all of this information through these platforms has been very important during this time. But we also know that those platforms have a history of bias against 
Palestinians, you know, who post about what they've been subject to by Israeli authorities under the apartheid system that exists there. Can you talk to us about kind of that history around how social media networks treat Palestinians and, and you know, just posts by Palestinians and, and I guess Arabic content more generally, and also what we've been seeing kind of in this moment from those companies? Yeah, I mean, so social media platforms have been a critical civic space for Palestinians to share their stories, to share their narratives, to debunk Israeli disinformation, to record the realities, uh, their realities uh, under Israeli occupation and system of apartheid. And especially in a context where Palestinians are not platformed on traditional media uh, and where, you know, there are existing and very clear biases about how media reports on Palestine and, and Israel. Yeah, I mean, but unfortunately, pretty much similar to what, you know, everything else we've seen, social media platforms have disproportionately been targeting Palestinian content. Palestinian voices have been for years now censored and particularly during times like these, during times where violence surges, times where Palestinians need social media to report and share information as widely as they can. In 2021, for instance, when uh, Palestinians in the in Sheikh Jarrah, which is a, a neighborhood in East Jerusalem, took to social media and to the streets to protest the possibility of forced evictions from their homes by Israeli authorities, social media companies almost immediately clamped down on, on that campaign. And we saw like hundreds upon hundreds of stories that carried the hashtag Sheikh, Safe Sheikh Jarrah were automatically removed. People were not able to go uh, on live stream. They were not able to comment on posts. We're not able to um, share content with the, uh, we saw also hashtags being blocked. It was pretty egregious back in 2021. And now two years later, with the genocide being committed in Gaza, we see the same type of repression on on Palestinian content again you know since uh, since October 7th a number of Palestinian journalists and human rights defenders have uh, been suspended on TikTok on Instagram on Facebook again content being automatically and erroneously removed under their anti-terrorism policies I'll give you just a few very interesting examples just that, that expose the level of of censorship and also the arbitrariness, the arbitrary nature of it. When the uh, Al Ahli Hospital was bombed, which was quite shocking news for people around the world, Instagram started taking down footage from that bombing under their so called sexual activity and nudity policy. So the algorithms thought that the dead bodies of Palestinians that were killed in a hospital bombing where nude bodies is very insensitive but also it shows you that when you're sharing information in real time how the arbitrary enforcement or over enforcement of some policies can hinder people's ability to express themselves and access information freely other examples include they shut down of one of the most popular Palestinian uh, media organizations, Al-Quds News Network. It has like over 10 million followers on Facebook. And early on, Facebook 
shut down and I think permanently banned the the outlet from the platform. And they've tried to create a couple of like alternative uh, pages, and they also were were shut down. Yeah, Palestinian journalists from Gaza are using Instagram to report uh, from the ground have been hacked, have been temporarily suspended. It's um, There is also this so-called shadow banning, which everyone who's been speaking up on Palestine and Gaza has probably experienced, including myself, where your outreach has been significantly reduced. You feel like you're speaking <laughs> to the void. No one is seeing your content. No one is engaging with it. Uh, in some even instances, people's profiles disappear altogether. You can't even find them on the search function on on the platform. These companies, despite pushback from civil society and demands for transparency, they still deny that all of that censorship is intentional. They deny their discriminatory policies and the way they apply them. Um, But, you know, if you look at uh, previous examples or take a similar context of military occupation, for instance, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you'll see a completely different response. You'll see tech companies going above and beyond their their policies and commitments to ensure that Ukrainians can express themselves freely and then can access information securely by making exceptions to their policies. So, you know, in uh, 2022, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, Meta even went on to allow an exception for Ukrainians to... Uh, to say death to Putin and death to Russians, which they then pulled back after Russia essentially threatened to add Meta as a as a terrorist organization. But you know, it just if you put these two contexts in 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 juxtaposition, you'll see how in one case platform censor and over remove content while denying that they're doing so, and at the same time make number of exceptions uh, for people that they think their rights are worthy of of protection and respect. Yeah, it's been really notable to see that divide between how, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been treated and then how kind of the Israeli bombardment of Gaza has been treated. You know, just to pick up on what you're saying, you know, Facebook also allowed the allowed the praise of Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov battalion, you know, which was previously not allowed. And and just to pick up on what you were saying about back in 2021 about, you know, the platforms and their treatment of Palestinian posts, I remember one of the most egregious examples in that moment was them treating posts about the Al-Aqsa Mosque as terrorist posts and removing them. And of course, over the past, you know, month or so, we've seen platforms like Instagram look at Palestinian in people's bios when it's next to Arabic language and auto-translate it with the word terrorist and then having to apologize for doing so. We've also seen, of course, WhatsApp create, you know, kind of generative AI stickers of children with guns, I believe it was. And, you know, there was also, you know, to go back to um, Hamle, this organization, they looked at posts that were being made on social media and again found that, you know, kind of hate speech posts in Hebrew have proliferated um, since October 7th, you know, hate speech against Palestinians. And this kind of stuff has not really been reined in by these major platforms and by X Twitter in particular. But meanwhile, you have this kind of aggressive censorship of Palestinians and and the types of things that, that they post on social media. 
Indeed. I mean, also to add to that, you know, we're the types of content restrictions we see, if some of it is really ridiculous. And, and I say ridiculous because I can't find any other adjective to describe the level of censorship we see on social media. You know, for instance, Palestinian flags are automatically uh, hidden on Instagram comments. Why? Because Instagram finds them offensive. I think it's blatant racism and dehumanization because assuming that a Palestinian flag is violent or is offensive to others, it's a flag. Why would any flag be offensive to anyone? And even if it is offensive, freedom of expression means that people have the right to share uh, such materials or content without being censored or, or undermined. But to your point on like how disinformation and hate speech is is flourishing on the platform. The, the issue when it comes to content moderation in the context of Palestine is it's a twofold problem. And it's really like two faces of the same coin. We have this over-moderation, like zealous over-moderation uh, by the platform's algorithms of political content under their so-called anti-terrorist or terrorist and violent extremism policies. Mind you, so far, everything that has been leaked around uh, those algorithms is not promising, you know, from the fact that those systems are poorly trained in Arabic languages, they detect content and remove it uh, erroneously most of the time. You know, for example, in one of the leaks uh, from Facebook researchers, an internal, you know, an internal memo said that Facebook's anti-terrorist algorithms that detect and, and automatically remove terrorist uh, content has falsely removed nonviolent Arabic content 77% of the time. And let's face it, I mean, platforms do rely on automation most of the time. Very recently, under the EU's Digital Services Act, the first transparency report was out and platforms were asked to provide numbers on the number of their content reviewers, but also on how much they use automation for their content moderation decisions. And it was quite astounding to see the, the numbers. For Meta, for instance, they use up to 94, uh, automation up to 94% of the time, or actually, let, to, be, to put it more accurately, 94% of their decisions on the platform are automated and it's 98 on Instagram. So they are relying heavily on those automated tools to detect and remove content. And again, to emphasize that most of the time it's erroneous and arbitrary removal, hence why we see all this uh, censorship. And speaking of algorithms, you know, one thing we found out back in uh, 2022, last year, after we insisted on Meta conducting a post-mortem investigation into content moderation actions in May 2021, we found out, or the Human Rights Due Diligence Investigation commissioned by Meta asserted that the company did not have any classifiers for hate speech in, uh, in Hebrew. So all the barrage of hate speech an incitement to violence in Hebrew language uh, hurled at Palestinians and Palestinian users have been flourishing on the platform because there are simply no tools for the company to detect it and remove it. And, you know, after the the, the investigation, Meta said that they've now built in close, uh, new classifiers in Hebrew, 
But a, a, another leak in the Wall Street journals from a few weeks ago said that essentially that those classifiers are not really operational. So this is to say that, you know, these platforms, and that's not a surprise, I guess, for anyone listening to the podcast, that the companies have not invested in an equitable manner in different parts of the world. They still prioritize the US and the English language as a market. And, you know, the rest of the world, including Palestine, where it's a an insignificant market by every indicator and measure, you know, they, they have zero investments and the, also they have zero political will to change any of this, you know, for them, I guess maybe Palestine is a, a media issue to to handle. You know, it's a every few years, maybe or every year, there is a surge in violence. Palestinian content is removed. Civil society is upset, and you know, and there are media articles scandalizing and criticizing the platforms. But then things move on to the next. The new cycle changes, and. We are in the same, you know, we're locked in the same pattern of over-censorship, no serious change in those policies or the way the companies informs them. They simply don't care. Let me put it this way. I know it's not a sophisticated answer, but they simply do not care. They do not care. I think what you're saying there is really important though, right? Because it's on one side, the economics of it, right? There's not a whole lot of profit in ensuring that kind of a Palestinian user base is is happy with what they're doing, but is also kind of represented properly. But then on the other side of things, we know that the Israeli authorities have a lot of resources that are dedicated to how they are portrayed on social media, but also how Palestinians are able to use social media. And we know that they flag a lot of posts to the social media companies for review and removal. And that, you know, companies like Meta are very open to those sorts of things and are very responsive to it in a way that they're not to Palestinian organizations who would try to do something similar, who have far fewer resources to actually do that kind of work, right, than what the Israeli authorities have. But then on top of that, I think it also goes back to what you were saying about misinformation and disinformation and kind of the larger picture of not just what happens on social media, but on Western media reporting as well, because one of the narratives that we had very early in October as this was kind of taking off was that there's so much mis- and disinformation spreading at the moment, it's hard to know exactly what is going on, as though it's this completely kind of depoliticized thing that there's just all this information out there and we can't weed through it. And oh my God, I don't know why this is. It's just technology and social media platforms. And it's like, okay, yes, there's a lot of that information out there, but why is that the case? You know, why is it so hard to get accurate information in Gaza? You know, it's because that there are communication shutdowns. It's because the Israeli authorities are keeping journalists out of Gaza so they can't get in and see things accurately. And now that they are allowing journalists in with the IDF, they need to submit all of their footage for review to the Israeli army authorities before it can be published. You know, uh, organizations like CNN have been very open about the fact that they've agreed to these terms. So I wonder how you think about this question of misinformation and disinformation and and kind of the, the power imbalance that is, is very clear in the type of information and the type of false information that has been spreading online, you know, over the past month or so as Israel's bombing campaign has continued in Gaza. Yeah, I mean, Israel is has a track record of uh, spreading disinformation and war propaganda. 
for many Palestinians and observers, it's almost like they use the same playbook all the time. You know, there's an atrocity committed and they plant a complete hoax information, which then causes this massive debate about did it happen? Did it not happen? Who was responsible for it? And the narrative shifts completely from the actual atrocity and the human suffering that it caused to a question of who was responsible for it. We saw that in the murder of the Palestinian-American journalist uh, Shirin Abu Akleh, who works for Al Jazeera or worked for Al Jazeera. She was uh, shot dead in Jenin. And the first reaction from the Israeli government online was to post a video claiming that she was shot down or she was gunned down by Palestinian militia. And thanks to journalists and also human rights organizations, they've quickly debunked that piece of disinformation with evidence that actually the location or the footage that Israel shared were kilometers away from where the journalist was actually standing. And that playbook then evolved we saw the same playbook in, uh, uh, used in the bombing of Al Ahli Hospital. I mean, the bombing happened, which was quite horrific and harrowing. And the, the thing that they've done is they posted a, a footage online that showed the. Of course, they claim that it's a it's a failed Palestinian rocket. They first they first said, I believe it was Hamas, and then said again, it's Islamic Jihad. And the footage was called, I meaning people called them out. People are not idiots. So they said, well, this is this video has completely the wrong timestamp on it. They deleted it. And then they came back with another footage that was recycled from another conflict, also called out and deleted it. And then they posted another footage and alleged intercepted call between uh, two Hamas members in which they said that the rocket was fired by Islamic Jihad and uh, landed in, in the hospital. And the narrative, the conversation, the debate online and offline shifted from the actual atrocity to who did this. And with that, of course, Israel evades full responsibility. And this round, we do not have reporters on the ground. There are very, very few I think Al Jazeera probably is the only uh, media, global media organization that has reporters on the ground at the moment. And that's why the Israeli authority wants to shut down its office and why Secretary Blinken also reportedly had asked the prime minister of Qatar to have Al Jazeera tone down its coverage in Gaza. And because we don't have reporters on the ground, there's also less and less footage being uh, shared on social media by uh, citizen journalists and bystanders. It becomes hard to verify. So this is to say that information vacuums, of course, breed disinformation because who is there to investigate and to verify the Israeli claims around those war crimes and atrocities? It's hard. And it's harder when, you know, Western media entertain and publish those thoughts without any scrutiny or proper or due investigation from from their side. I think there is a question for later, maybe not now, but once there is a ceasefire and the bombing stops and the dust settles, 
whether there will be an investigation into the war crimes and crimes against humanity that were or have been committed or are being committed in the Gaza Strip and whether Israel would allow for such an investigation to take place. They want us to take their word for it. And some of those claims are, to be honest, are quite ridiculous and even an insult to anyone's intelligence. Yesterday, for instance, we saw footage from the uh, Israeli army from a children's hospital in Gaza, the Rantisi hospital, in which they alleged it was used as a Hamas command center where they held Israeli hostages. And they, they're they using diapers and a baby bottle they found as an evidence that there were hostages held there. Well, they are in a children's hospital where many displaced Palestinian families were taking shelter. And then there's, of course, this whole thing about the calendar meme uh, where, you know, they they found a handwritten calendar hang on the wall and they said, oh, look at this uh, Hamas terrorist, the guard list, where it's simply a, uh, <laughs> with their names on it, where it's simply, you know, a, a, a staff shift calendar with the, the names of the week written on, on it in, in Arabic. Today, I, I saw that CNN ran with the story. And for the American public or for non-Arabic speakers, why would you question, you know, you would, you would take this probably for granted. Why would you question the CNN running this, uh, these allegations without any scrutiny or proper investigation? And to your point, you know, they have agreed to the IDF's conditions that everything they will say will, of course, have to be approved by the military uh, censor in, in, in Israel. This is the disinformation we, we see now. One thing I also want to say, uh, which I have not seen before, is that so many of those open source intelligence accounts on social media have been active in peddling dis- and amplifying disinformation. Um, some of those accounts have been quite active in the context of Russia, Ukraine. So they've built an audience and probably credibility to their reporting. And now they're amplifying Israeli disinformation. And if you're not careful and very critical of, of every piece of information you see online, you'll probably fall for that propaganda. That's a really important point and, and one I hadn't even included in my notes. So I'm happy that you brought it up. And I just want to kind of add to what you were saying there. You know, when it comes to the Al-Ali hospital bombing, you know, obviously Al Jazeera questioned the Israeli narrative right away. We also had Channel 4 News in the UK um, produce a report, several reports kind of calling into question the supposed evidence that Israel presented to dispute the narrative that it had caused that bombing. The New York Times also published a report calling into question some of this evidence. And there was one other Western media organization that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But just to show that, you know, even even in this case, it was very much called into question, but the kind of broader narrative that Israel had not caused this was allowed to stand, right? And because they had done enough to kind of sow doubt in the minds of the public and in the minds of so many. Um, but then on top of that, of course, you have, and, and you know, what you were saying about the kind of Arabic calendar, it does seem to be that the Israeli authorities rely on the fact that, you know, kind of a Western public does not know Arabic and so uses just the Arabic language itself to 
you know, kind of deceive people, whether it's, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been saying things frequently, but the president as well, Isaac Herzog, has frequently gone on television and held up kind of issues of Mein Kampf and, uh, you know, support uh, supposed kind of instructions about creating bombs that was supposedly found on Hamas terrorists in Israel. And, you know, free, again and again, there's this supposed evidence that comes out that is very quickly debunked when Arabic speakers can see it and say, like, what are you talking about? This is not reflective of what you're saying at all. And also kind of videos. And as you say, kind of the the supposed phone call recording that was included in the, the hospital evidence that very clearly shows accents that are not kind of Arabic or Palestinian accents that don't line up with what the Israeli authorities are, are trying to claim. I did want to say, you know, as difficult as it is now, and sometimes even infuriating to see the gaslighting of the atrocities being committed and the justification of Israeli war crimes, I find it sometimes entertaining to watch Israeli propaganda because some of it is really quite unbelievable. You know, that nurse or that actor, you know, terrible actor, I really advise her to switch careers pretending to be a Palestinian nurse in Al-Shifa hospital and then saying that she has to do a surgery for a five-year-old child who has a fracture, but Hamas took all the morphine and that there are Hamas fighters in the hospital. I mean, it is funny, but it just shows you the level of depravity that while the hospital is currently besieged and there are people dying, patients dying because of lack of electricity, lack of, of medicine, succumbing to their wounds in the most probably agonizing ways. You have Israeli authorities resorting to these very cheap and DYI types of, of disinformation to justify their attacks on hospitals. And mind you, this whole discussion around you know Hamas using hospitals as uh, command centers or there are tunnels underneath the hospital, that still would not justify the targeting of innocent civilians and the attack on hospitals, including maternity wards, the shelling of maternity wards, the shelling of intensive care units. I mean, none of that is justified. But then again, we're here dealing with a with a not only a war on the ground, but also a war on social media and a war of narratives. And that's why for the Israelis, it's very important to add this fog of war around what they're doing. And also, it's not only Israeli authorities that are peddling disinformation. The president of the US, Joe Biden, has also went on spreading disinformation when he, for instance, repeat said that uh, he saw 40 beheaded babies, which the White House then clarified that they have not seen any confirmed reform, uh, reports of beheaded babies. But the CNN reported that. And then they said, oops, sorry, we could not verify that information. We were misled. But the damage was already done. The dehumanization was already done. The justification of Israel's bombardment and carpet bombing campaign is, in Gaza is done. You know, I think it's important here to highlight that it's not only Israeli authorities, but there's also, quote unquote, so-called democratic leaders taking part in the in the spread of disinformation. It's not just some rogue actors, you know, deliberately misleading the, the public. And also to add one more example, Joe Biden had also questioned the number of casualties on the Palestinian side, which is 
quite inhumane considering the the number of of casualties and the number number of Palestinians that have been killed so far and we saw how also other media organizations started running the the disclaimer that the numbers from the Ministry of Health are not to be trusted because it's a Hamas run public entity which led them to issue a over 200 page report with every single name of a Palestinian who've been killed together with their age, gender, and their ID number, in case those who are doubtful of the numbers can go and cross-check uh, with, the, with the civil registry. It's quite dehumanizing. And also, it's not only about you know, posting a video or some piece of, of disinformation online, but it's about how you weave a narrative and how you use and construct different parts of information um, to build this narrative that Palestinians are terrorists, Hamas is, you know, using hospitals and schools as military bases, and therefore it is okay to carpet bomb the entire Gaza Strip, no matter how many Palestinians are are killed, including children and women uh, and men. Yeah, and, and it's clearly against the Geneva Conventions to do something like that. It also shows, you know, whether it's with Western leaders or liberal commentators or, you know, the Western media, kind of how the bar of evidence is so much different when it comes to Israeli claims versus Palestinian claims, right? You know, they're happy to repeat the mis and disinformation when it comes from Israeli authorities, but will immediately question accurate figures when it comes from, you know, the Palestinian side. And it was even the UN had to come out and say that they trust the Gaza Ministry of Health numbers. We know that the State Department itself considers those numbers to be trustworthy, even though Antony Blinken kind of publicly questioned them and and the president did as well. And I think that your point about dehumanization is really important as well, right? Because we have seen a lot of that when it comes to Palestinians, you know, over the past month and long before, of course, as well. And on top of that, kind of the the videos and posts, as we've been talking about spreading on Israeli social media, um, you know, kind of the the Hollywood conspiracy theory that there are, uh, you know, all these Palestinians who are just pretending to die and and be injured and stuff in Gaza and the West Bank. And, you know, on top of that, just people making posts joking about the fact that Palestinians in Gaza don't have access to water and and electricity and kind of joking about and celebrating those things. It's really disgusting to see. I want to ask you, you know, one thing to kind of close this conversation about social media in particular is that we have also seen the Israelis move forward with an amendment to their counterterrorism law that bans, uh, the consumption even of what they call terrorist material. So now people within Israel who are even just scrolling social media and happen to read posts that are supportive of the Palestinian cause um, can be charged and and receive up to a year prison sentence for that. You know, and that's kind of Palestinian citizens of Israel, but also Jewish Israelis who also don't support what their government is doing. What do you make of kind of the increasing move toward authoritarianism within Israel and the specific law criminalizing the use of social media if you happen to interact with anything that's pro-Palestinian? Yeah, I mean, early on, since October 7th, the Israeli authorities have, have clamped down on on freedom of expression uh, within Israel proper. 
And not surprisingly, the majority of people arrested, prosecuted, and detained are Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel in East Jerusalem, Palestinian residents. You know, there have been reports of hundreds of people being uh, stopped by Israeli authorities uh, and the police on the streets and asked to share their their devices in which, you know, the authorities can scroll through people's posts, messages, and see what pages even they follow. And according to uh, a Palestinian human rights organization, Adela, there have been, I think, at least 100 and 140 uh, cases of investigations where people have been detained and, and, and investigated for something they've said or shared on, on social media. But coming to your point, on 8th of November, uh, the Israeli Knesset passed a, a temporary amendment to their entire or counterterrorism law of 2016, where it, it introduced a new offense, a new crime that prohibits the consumption of uh, materials that can praise or support acts of terrorism or terrorist organizations. It also gave the the Israeli Minister of Justice uh, to be able to designate new groups. So this amendment, the new crime of consumption, is tied to consumption of materials from Hamas and ISIS. But the Israeli Minister of Justice can add to uh, that list uh, in agreement with the with the um, the Israeli Minister of Defense and the approval of of, of, Knesset, of Knesset, uh committee, it's pretty dangerous. I mean, you see there, it's a straight weaponization of law to stifle dissent and to crush any Palestinian form of expression or solidarity with Gaza. You probably saw the video of the Palestinian woman detained from her house because by the Israeli police, and they've read out loud the, the charges that she was facing, including spreading and praising uh terrorist organizations supporting, uh, posting content that incites to violence and supports uh, terrorism. And also she was investigated for being involved in a terrorist organization. And why? Because she changed her WhatsApp status and wrote that may they be victorious or something like that, you know, a, a vague reference it, it could be to anyone. She could also be, could have, you know, referred to Palestinians in Gaza, not necessarily Hamas. There are many, many stories like that where Palestinians have been detained. There was a Palestinian student in a university in Haifa where she posted an Instagram story of her making shakshuka and uh, saying that this is uh, the shakshuka of victory. And she was also detained on similar allegations. And the Israeli authorities have been very, very clear. They said that they will open an investigation into any type of content, even if it's a WhatsApp or a Instagram story that disappears after 24 hours. And they've also banned any pro-Palestine solidarity. And people are afraid. They're petrified, as a matter of fact. They can't share their opinions online. They can't go out on the streets to express themselves. They feel threatened in their schools, in their universities, and in their jobs, because anyone also can report on them. But then, Because here is a question of who's watching you, right? Who's watching you on social media? It could be the authorities, but it also could be your classmate, your employer, your uh, neighbor, anyone on your list of followers can report you to the authorities. And we all know that the Israeli justice 
system does not serve Palestinians well. And there, it is really designed to crush Palestinian expressions of identity and Palestinians' ability to to express themselves. So it's, it is terrifying. The interesting thing here to see how this will, will evolve is that how these laws will be applied to uh, Jewish Israelis, because as I said, it's been mostly Palestinians impacted by such measures. But now we hear also reports of Jewish Israelis being prosecuted or detained because of things they've expressed online. And one thing also to remind everyone is that this law, which is quite draconian, has been the law under which Israel designated six prominent human rights organizations. And so one thing that I'm concerned about is the how potentially, if the situation deteriorates, the Israeli authorities can also prohibit the consumption of reports and documentation and content from these leading incredible human rights organizations in the West Bank. I mean, the same authorities that can decide that a human rights organization is a terrorist organization can also prohibit the consumption of their of their work and their material if they if they want to. So none none of this is assuring. Let me let me put it this way. You know, it's quite concerning thinking of how this can evolve further. Yeah, and to be clear, you know, it's not just Palestinian human rights organizations or Arab human rights organizations. The Israeli state and the Israeli government, as I understand, has been quite hostile toward Israeli human rights organizations as well, like Beth Salem and Yeshin, who have called, you know, what they're doing in the West Bank and Gaza a system of apartheid, right? Very, very clearly. And I, I don't think that can be denied at this point. And on top of that, the genocide that's ongoing in Gaza. I want to ask as well, you know, this notion of kind of Israel technological superiority has been really important, not just for the image of Israel globally, you know, and kind of the interaction of tech companies with it, but also the idea that, you know, it's so hard to push back against Israel because it has this surveillance power. It has this kind of military technological might that is so difficult to push back against from you know, kind of the perspective of Palestinians who are under occupation and, you know, who don't have nearly the same degree of tools. And I think that that narrative was really punctured on October 7th. You know, whatever you feel about that event, it's hard not to deny that by being able to breach the, the high-tech security fence and the fact that Israeli authorities were not able to detect the fact that Hamas was planning this attack on them because they were using analog communication methods that could not be picked up by, you know, their kind of digital surveillance tools and were also kind of their human surveillance was not uh, as reliable as they thought. I guess, what does this do for the narrative of Israeli technological supremacy and kind of the continued way that Israel uses its surveillance technologies and whatnot to buy kind of support um, abroad by selling those to to other governments that want to spy on their citizens? I think the name of this podcast uh, is a good caption for that event, that tech won't save, <laughs> tech won't save anyone. But yeah, I mean, Israel has relied on its so-called homeland security industry. It prides itself of being a startup nation. It prides itself in uh, being the jurisdiction that houses many so-called uh, unicorns, including spyware outfits and surveillance companies like NSO Group and others, and has used its occupation and has used its so-called experience in homeland security to sell that technology to 
governments around the world. Of course, sell it as a as tools that are battle tested and field tested. Uh, I remember one of the Israeli biometric surveillance companies that provides biometric identification tech in the West Bank, but also to airports around the world, um, in which they also refer to their technology as yeah, field tested in one of the most challenging security contexts, referring again to the, pal- the occupied Palestinian territories. And as you said, like the events of October 7th, just it shattered that image. And right now, I think some of the Israeli buyer or companies like NSO Group are trying to utilize or seize the moment to brand themselves as forces for good or as tech for good. You know, for example, a couple of Israeli companies said that we, including NSO Group, that they want to help the Israeli authorities locate and find the hostages. There are also reports that it's trying to seize the moment to remove the blacklisting by the U.S. Department of Commerce and attempt to position themselves around the lines of we are indeed very important or we sell very important tools for governments, concerned governments, to combat and disclose terrorism and terrorist attacks. But again, it's important to question this entire pipeline uh, and this entire military industry complex and and where and how that technology comes from and how it is tested and how it and how it evolves and also at what expense. I've said before and I want to share here again that I think Israeli tech should be treated like blood diamonds because the inception and the prototyping and the testing of those technologies often involve the violation of Palestinians' human rights. Palestinians do not consent to the use of these technologies on them as individuals and as communities, whether it be spyware, whether it be biometric surveillance tools, whether it be automated weapons. We have not consented to the use of these technologies or the testing of them on us. And even now in Gaza, in terms of traditional weapons, some doctors say that some of the injuries they're treating, they have no clue. They have not seen, you know, burns or types of injuries like this before. So, you know, it pulls the question of what tools are in arms and weapons, whether it be cyber or traditional or chemical, the Israelis are using on Palestinians. And the importance for governments around the world and companies that import and use these technologies to conduct proper human rights due diligence, which, (laughs) I mean... For me, you know, it's easy to draw the the lines and and the dots between those technologies and how they're they're being weaponized against Palestinians. But maybe for others, that is not as visible. And so, it's important to interrogate that entire supply line and understand um, how the purchase and the use of such technology can further undermine Palestinians' rights and entrench, you know, their oppression under Israeli apartheid and occupation. Yeah, a very important point, right? To recognize how these technologies are used, how they're developed. You know, it's long overdue to question these things and and not to allow these technologies to be rolled out because not only are they being developed under apartheid, are they to be being developed on an occupied population, but these are surveillance technologies, right? These are biometrics technologies. These are military technologies. These are not things that we want to be rolled out in our societies and that we should be kind of pushing back against, right? And I think that 
brings me well to my final question that I wanted to ask you. You know, we could talk for another hour and a half and there are a million things I could ask you about and talk to you about. But one of the things that I think many people will have felt over the past month or so is looking at these videos, whether they're on Al Jazeera or Western media channels or on the various social media that they are consuming and seeing just death and destruction and feeling that powerlessness that all of this tragedy is happening and it feels like there's nothing that you can do to contribute to the end of it. And so I wonder, you know, in the face of that, is there anything that people can do or how do you feel that people might be able to respond in a positive way in the face of those atrocities and that tragedy? There's a lot that people can do. And I want listeners to know that you have so much power, more than you think you have. And every little act of solidarity or every act of solidarity, no matter how big or small, is extremely, extremely important. People in Gaza have been calling for a ceasefire. They want the ceasefire and we're demanding a ceasefire. So you can also continue demanding a ceasefire. You can go out on demonstrations that are now happening every weekend in many capitals around the world. You can write to your representatives. You can call your your representatives. It's the people that you've elected and, and demand that they call for a ceasefire. You know, you can help amplify Palestinian voices on social media, despite the censorship and despite the flood of disinformation and dehumanization we see online. I think the reason why we are having this conversation, the reason why many people are out protesting on the streets, the reason why people are even bursting into conferences and meetings and even train rides where these officials are is because of people sharing on social media. So continue sharing, continue amplifying Palestinian voices, raise and share facts, testimonies from the ground. Sadly, there's less and less coming out. That's why every voice and every piece of information matters. Do not give up. Do not lose hope. And again, you know, I really want to emphasize that anything you do is important. Anything you do is powerful. And we should continue adding and building pressure, especially where we live here in in Western capitals, to call out the hypocrisy, to call out the complete disregard to human rights and uh, and, and human life uh, and demand that Palestinian innocent lives are, are saved. I think that's a really important way to end this conversation to let people know that there are things that they can do, right? You know, social media has its problems, but it's not going away. So especially in moments like this, use it positively where you can, right? To to raise up these voices um, so that people know what's going on. And, you know, I know in some parts of the world, you know, political leaders have been warning people against going out on marches in support of Palestinian rights and the end to an occupation and for a ceasefire in this stage of the conflict. I was out in Montreal this weekend and it was fantastic to be around thousands of people calling for an end to the occupation and for a ceasefire. And I would highly encourage you to do the same if it's happening in your own city. So Marwa, it, it was really fantastic to speak with you. I can only imagine how difficult, you know, th- this past month or so has been, but I thank you so much for the work that you do and for, you know, coming to speak to us and and sharing that with us. Yeah, it was great speaking with you. Thank you again for having me. 
Marwa Fatafta is a Palestinian digital rights advocate and Middle East North Africa policy and advocacy director at Access Now. Tech Won't Save Us is hosted by me, Paris Marks. Production is by Eric Wickham and transcripts are by Bridget Polly Fry. Tech Won't Save Us relies on the support of listeners like you to keep providing critical perspectives on the tech industry. You can join hundreds of other supporters by going to patreon.com slash techwontsaveus and making a pledge of your own. Thanks for listening and make sure to come back next week.